Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Rogan Graham. I'm Josh Slater-Williams. On the show this week, a legend is restored in Chevalier and we'll be talking to its stars, Calvin Harrison Jr. and Lucy Boynton. Two Lakota boys come of age in War Pony and Charles Bromesco spoke to Riley Keough and Gina Kamau about their directorial debut. And on Film Club, it's Ryan Gosling, a.k.a. Ken's directorial debut, Lost River. All coming up on Truth of Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, very lovely to have you back again. But for new listeners, why don't we do a little reintroduction to you both? Rogan, do you want to go first? Who is it that you are? Who am I? Oh, wow, what a question, Layla. So early, too. Um, uh, I'm Rogan. Uh, my job, I think, has probably changed since I was last on here. Uh, I am now the programme and events producer at Reclaim the Frame, um, where we champion films by directors of marginalised genders. So, you know, look out for Q&As and directors and filmmakers that we host great events with. And I also still do some writing bits and podcast bits um, for this White Life. You do indeed. And we love having you here with us. And Josh, a lot has changed since you were last with us when, uh, sadly, last time you were on Edinburgh Film Festival had uh, just received some very bad news. Uh, happier times for you. But uh, who are you? <laughs> I don't know which part to address first, though. I'll say Edinburgh is apparently coming back in some form. So there we go. So that's nice. I, yeah, I'm i a freelance critic for places like Little White Lies, Sight and Sound, Total Film, Dazed and others. And I have a copywriting post at the moment for a quite cool film thing. But I've just realized as I'm speaking, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say what it is on the air. So that's going to be a secret for all of you who don't know. There you go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just I love having a little secret. But yeah, one of the things that happened to me this morning, funnily enough, was uh, I was talking about how I was going to have to review um, War Pony. And my husband attempted to show me that my job was about to be redundant. And he did try to do one on chat. Was it chat GDP? This is the one that. Ah, yes. And it was terrible. So I was very reassured and it got all of the information wrong and the actors' names were wrong. And they used the word marvelous like 17 times. So. That feels reassuring. But are you guys worried that AI is coming for our jobs? Um, no. Yes. I don't know. I don't quite understand how it works. I've decided that it's a phase like the NFTs and I never learned really what they were. And now no one talks about them. So I've decided to just ignore this until it goes away in, in the same fashion. Uh, my stance is AI cannot replace most of the jobs that is currently affecting but the problem is that the uh, higher ups will think you know just see oh here's a means of saving a quick buck and you know assigning more duties to less people and that's more the concern i sense that's been the case with uh, the layoffs at buzzfeed i've seen suggestions that ai is being brought in to write posts for buzzfeed so that's a little worrying as an example. But who was writing for BuzzFeed before? Weren't they just copy and pasting people's tweets? No, but they, there were the layoffs at like the BuzzFeed News, which was like an uh, actual, yes. actual legitimate thing. I do know one negative effect film-wise this is having is that this is actively impeding the critical renaissance for Steven Spielberg's AI because now well, no one is going to want to talk about Steven Spielberg's AI because of this affecting the film and writing worlds. So, yes, solidarity with all the striking WGA and SAG. Absolutely. Solidarity. Yeah. I mean, I did a deep dive into that recently and it's it's so much worse the more you look into it and the demands are so reasonable. But this rise of the mini room seems to be the thing that I really worry about most in that because, you know, you write as rooms on TV shows, it used to be like eight people 
Now it can be two or even three. And so the market is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. The TV seasons are getting shorter. The gaps are getting bigger. Now the number of writers on minimum rates is at 50% because they just cycle in young upstarts and there's nowhere for them to progress to. It's really sad. It is. It's really sad and scary. And again, I can't really engage with it. I don't think I'll just wait for it to resolve itself because it's, um, it is It's very bleak. But um, yeah, solidarity with everyone striking and we'll see, I suppose. And if Haley Joel Osmond comes along, we'll know that it's truly over for them and we should all just retrain in different fields. What was it that Rishi, Rishi Sunak said? Our next jobs could be in cyber. Well. We should move on to uh, a less simple time. I was going to say a simpler time, but that is certainly not the case if the first film's subject that we'll be talking about. It's Chevalier. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Based on the incredible true story of composer Joseph Ballon, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the illegitimate son of an African slave and a French plantation owner, Ballon rises to improbable heights in French society as a celebrated violin composer. So, before we get into the film itself, I spoke to Kelvin Harrison Jr. and Lucy Boynton, who played Joseph Ballon and Marie Antoinette in the film. It's lovely to meet you both. I, I, lo- I really, really love the film. I kind of laughed, cried, was furious afterwards as well I mean for you the tone of it I mean how do you kind of view it because it is a really fun film but then I found myself for days later being like actively furious yeah I think when you're doing it it is you're very focused on what the characters need and and what they're kind of struggling with and so it is a, a much harder experience going through the situations day by day than it is to watch it I found mm-hmm. but you know what I had to do is just leave it to Stephen our director to trust that he would find the levity in it all and understand that you know we have to we have to make the movie mm-hmm. you know what I mean so he makes the movie we play we play the people in their struggles. <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? It's true. I'm, not, I'm supporting you. <laughs> but you also kind of, you're almost at other ends of the spectrum in terms of like source material because there is such an established idea of who Marie Antoinette is. And then there is kind of this person who's been erased from history in so many ways. I mean, was it difficult coming to, kind of coming from where you've almost got too much at one end and not enough at the other? I don't know. I think with this script, it was so different. It was such a different experience of this time period, of this kind of the context of Versailles and Marie Antoinette, that it felt new and and an opportunity to, yeah, visit a really different side of these characters. But I do think, yeah, I was pulling from, there are so many resources to pull from and so much kind of context for that character, which I think is the most helpful rather than just kind of iterations of who the, who everyone thinks she was. It was mm. filling out the context of everything around her that shapes the person to be that, um, that was really useful to be able to, to pull from. And with you, I suppose you had a lot more kind of space to kind of discover who this person was because so much of it, you know, was kind of you're 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 in some ways sort of introducing him to a lot of mm-hmm. people. There's a lot of creative liberties, you know. I, I, I guess I, mostly I was just like Stephanie wrote the guy on the page. You can do as much research as you want to, but not enough is going to give you anything that actually changes too much of the trajectory. I think the details that do matter, like how much he was sexualized, or you know, the fact that he went to kind of a a, a school where you know. These women would teach them how to be men in the bedroom. You know, Mm -hmm. these types of strange details kind of help you have a a sense of how he uses his sexuality to get what he wants at time, how to flirt Mm -hmm. or trying to being self-aware of his, you know, his fetishization. You know what I mean? These I mean, those things maybe help. But at the end of the day, it was like, I don't know. It was like he's mad. 
he's angry. He's really angry. He's really hurt. He's really lonely. He's he's really lost. And he he knows he has something really special and he wants people to respect it. And that's just a human thing. So then I was like, I'm just going to play the, you know, play the human being, I guess. One of the things that I came out of it and I was so impressed with your performance was that I'd loved you in Cyrano. And that's very much you're playing a not genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're going to the other end again where you're in full genius mode. I mean, what is the approach to kind of doing intelligence that well? Because, I mean, like, you were very convincing as a dummy, so it was like... Thank you. <laughs> That's more my truth. Um, um, I think the thing is, it was like someone who's very self-aware. Joseph believes his own press. Mm-hmm. And if you say Joseph was great, Joseph's like, of course I am. Christian, on the other hand, is very naive. He's very innocent. He's just kind of like, wow, this is... I've never seen the world before. I didn't understand the world to be like this. And I think it's just like you kind of... Joseph just doubles down. He's just like... You like it? Of course you do. You just don't even give people a chance to answer. You just say yes. (laughs) And that is my approach to it. (laughs) Makes sense. I mean, like, the connection between two characters does feel, like, stranger than fiction. I mean, what do you think it is that that draws these two people together? Because, you know, their relationship changes and their lives change, but there does seem to be something that they see in one another. Yeah, and I think it's also a kind of stepping stone thing where they're both an opportunity to get to the next step Mm -hmm. for each other. And for Marie Antoinette, she gravitates towards him because he is excellent and because he is so rare in how excellent he is in every facet of his life. And so she wants to be seen next to that. And there's something that she, I think, earnestly is in awe of. But her first thing isn't like... Let me praise that. It's let me be seen next to. And mm-hmm. therefore, by association, I'll be elevated too. And so I think when you start on that kind of transactional relationship, it does make sense, therefore, for where she's able to go when she sees she just behaves in a really self-serving, remorselessly pragmatic way. And so, it, yeah, it, it kind of, I think, draws the audience in and lulls them into a false sense of security in terms of the authenticity of that relationship and then where it goes. I mean, it's obviously a period film, but, I mean, it does feel distinctly modern, a lot of it. I mean, you know, on purpose, obviously. But do you guys have any kind of modern references to the characters that you were that you were thinking about? I mean, I was thinking Jimi Hendrix a lot, I have to say. Jimi Hendrix, Prince was a big one. Um, those were the main two. It was, and it was just more so because it, like... It was trying to fix this is the thing too, is, like, with the period of it all, when you're playing a violinist, it can get really stuffy. Mm-hmm. And they're actually really wicked, you know what I mean? But you have to figure out how to find that in a way that everyone can see it. So you have to exaggerate it just a little bit. So then you start to look at the references of Prince and the attitude and the the snarkiness and the like, you know, I would make this joke with everyone. It's like Joseph has the kind of personality. He's like, mm, I smell stupid people nearby. And it was just like, <laughs> and it, but there was like, but there's this like a knowingness that mm-hmm. all of those artists have like, I'm on a different level and you're not really getting the what I'm doing over here. You don't appreciate it. And it's really coming from a place of like, I'm not being seen properly. Mm-hmm. So it's a defensiveness and it really that's happening. But um, that's the rock star. The rock star is like, I'm vibing on a high wave. Meet me or get lost, you know? That's not very approachable, but Joseph is not very approachable, to <laughs> no. be honest. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, we don't expect Mary Antoinette to be approachable either. Oh, no. <laughs> No, and I don't think, I didn't really look, I think she's been so referenced, I kind of referenced the public version of her a lot. But I think in terms of a contemporary reference, what really struck me reading the script was the final scene where they where she confronts Joseph. This rhetoric was really familiar. It feels like something we've heard a lot of really recently. And so it was really interesting going to that point of view of what makes a person operate out of brutality based in fear. Mm-hmm. So complete fear that makes them retreat into a belief system that actually they weren't that close to to begin with it's mm. just clutching at something that they has given them personally security mm-hmm. and how far are those people willing to go is that kind of personality willing to go and so it was kind of horrifying but educational to have such contemporary context and reference for that yeah type of rhetoric Sadly, contemporary, I mean, must be said. Just like slightly more generally, so much about this story is about kind of the erasure of this man's art. I mean, is that something that you guys also worry about yourselves? I mean, we're kind of living in this age where it seems like things can just be like deleted from platforms and never seen again and not preserved. I mean, do you worry about that for yourselves as artists, that your kind of legacy at the hands of someone else to hit delete? 
I think just the fact that anyone's is at the hands of a collective, it's like the fact that we've missed Joseph's story mm. is so unforgivable and terrifying that, like, that so many of these people have slipped through the net. Well, not actually, they haven't. They've been so deliberately um, kept on the outside and erased from it. And then this kind of society who were kind of very focused on control and controlling the narrative, I think that's a kind of a terrifying concept for people to be awake to. But I don't really... Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of not that focused on leaving. I'm really, yeah, I'm really, I'm really just, I'm just riding the wave. <laughs> I really don't. I don't really expect anyone to. I don't. I'm not trying to leave a legacy. I guess. Yeah. I'm just. I'm just trying to serve my point part of the community, and that's my biggest thing. And I. I think what I loved about Joseph, and I think the reason why we might be talking about him now, is that he found his way into contributing to his community, to the people mm-hmm. that needed him the most, the people that wanted to see him, wanted to love him, wanted to respect him. And he returned that with respect. And that's why he went on to be this, like, start the first black re- regiment uh, in, this, in this revolution. You know, it's because he was like, oh, how am I contributing? And then you, maybe you get remembered, maybe you don't. It's really hard to, you know, I don't, like, you can't fear it, I guess. Mm-hmm. You can't fear it. You just have to do what you need to do, I think. He was trying to leave a legacy? I think at first, maybe. Yeah. And then he realized it was... Uh, it's what you do here and now. He can't. You know what I mean? You can't work towards it, I guess, mm. in some ways. It either is or it isn't, mm. you know? You will be remembered if you if you, you really, you know, affected some change. Mm. Part of like, the power of this is that we are sort of bringing this person into the present and we're kind of correcting that erasure. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, was there ever a concern for you that this would ever get kind of preachy? Because, I mean, one of the things I loved about the film is it is also just gorgeous filmmaking. It's not just kind of, like, self-serious need to educate sort of thing. That's true. I think it was something I was nervous about a little bit. And I think what I think what Stephen did do a really good job with was taking out the preachiness, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and allowing us to be like, OK, you don't have to lean into that. Just give it as mm-hmm. fact. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just it's fun. You're in love. Actually, you're friends. You know what I mean? It's not like the queen is here and Joseph is like it's really grounding these people into something that's very familiar and very human and very flawed and messy and just young. That's mm. the thing, too. This is a movie about young people. Mm. It's not like we're watching, like, the only mature person is Lagimar. Everyone mm. else is like, what, how old are you in the movie? I'm like 25. Mm. He's a mm. kid. He doesn't know what's going on. And I think that's what's so, like, refreshing about it. It's, it's like, messy and messy. present and electric and just kind of, yeah, has that dynamic. But I think, and then that comes down to, I think, so much the script and the filmmakers and the tone, where it's mm-hmm. like you end up kind of Trojan horsing the message because you're just like living among it yes. rather than trying to, yeah, it's, it's exactly it's not as trying you to said. teach you anything. No, it's just it's, trying to invite you in yes. to like see what it actually is to sit with these people rather than to, yeah, like you're saying, rather than to like tell you about it. So, I mean, in terms of audiences coming into it, like, do you have kind of a dream reaction in terms of like somebody sitting down watching this movie? What would you like? most want them to hear hear them say as they kind of left the cinema. Classical music is fire! (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I just want them to... I just want kids, like, I did leave a screening and when I was in, I think, New York or something, and then I had this, I passed this kid and he was like, I'm going to start learning the violin now! And it's this little black kid. And that made me just so excited because... The reason why I did not pick, I started, I played the violin when I was seven for a couple of years and then Hurricane Katrina happened and the program that I was in went away. Okay. And I never picked it back up again because it wasn't a cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, oh, you want to go do like a music that no one listens to? No. And so I started playing jazz band, which, you know, it's not much higher, more popular. <laughs> <laughs> Just the next step. Just the next step. But I, I think it's what I hope that people do is is, is kind of walk away being like, man, I can be my authentic self and whatever I'm craving, I can embrace and try. And I will be celebrated, hopefully, for that. Um, and if I'm not, I can celebrate myself. So, Josh, this is a film that you've uh, written about at length and spoken to the team as well. You know more about music than I do, but this isn't really a uh, composer that most people have any awareness of. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there is there is now a lot of wealth of material about him, but, you know, far, 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 far less than your uh, Beethoven's or your Mozart's or what have you, partly due to, yeah, 
the lead character's race and revolutionary action so that when Napoleon took over, he was uh, so miffed by the Chevalier's uh, actions that he sort of effectively ordered that anything about him be erased from history. And so a lot of his music was lost, a lot of like documentation about him was lost. But, you know, thankfully some of it was preserved and we've been able to over the years, you know, create a fairly accurate historical record of this. But, you know, Joseph Bologna isn't someone who's necessarily taught widely in, you know, curriculum per se. So I think that's something, you know, the the writer Stephanie Robinson mentioned to me, like, you know, she only found out about him from like a like blurb on like a book her mother gave her. But like she she studied classical music, you know, to quite a high level. And, you know, he never really came up in the, in the education of that. So I believe part of the goal of the project here is to, it's kind of a biopic, not quite a biopic. It's kind of like, this is a figure who can sustain several compelling films, television series, what have you, mini series that get pulled off HBO Max immediately. Uh, for tax reasons. But yeah, what Robinson and director Stephen Williams kind of wanted to do was pinpoint an idea in this fascinating and full life. Although there is a bit of, you know, him as a child, it's not trying to do a like um, cradle to the grave biopic. It's focusing on one idea, which is sort of like how someone kind of gets radicalized when they have been kind of welcomed into the high society of what's ultimately just convenient allyship. As I believe some of the actors said when I interviewed them, for, not for Little White Lies, obviously, because you've just played uh, the interview for Little White Lies. That was not me. Yeah, so in that respect, I find it a quite interesting film in that regard. But and, but it's also not quite a strict biopic in that it's being quite loose with it. I think a big elephant in the room with this film is Amadeus, which is obviously based on a play. It's not a biopic. It's like an interpretation of, of historical events. So how that's kind of loosely referenced in this is a quite in my opinion, quite fun opening sequence, which is not necessarily based on historical record regarding Joseph Bologna and Mozart, but it's sort of loosely based on the famous rock and roll story of um, basically uh, an unknown Jimi Hendrix being at like a cream gig in the 60s and asking Eric Clapton if he could come up on stage. And Eric Clapton's like, sure, okay, not expecting anything. And then like Jimi Hendrix just shows him up completely. Um, So it's kind of trying to nail that sort of like rock and roll biopic aspect i would say sorry rock and roll portrait so it's equal parts equal parts class you know classical music biopic slash rock star movie i don't know if that makes sense maybe that makes sense to you guys please tell me what you think well i think it makes sense for someone who's seen chevalier because i think it does seem like it might be some quite staid kind of buttoned up biopic that's going to just make everybody feel very sad about how terrible things were for black people all that time ago but no it's got real swagger to it and it's a lot more fun than I think people might expect. Rogan, for you, did it work as a film as well as a history lesson? I feel really mixed on this film because I, I think I, I didn't I enjoyed watching it. I was in a very kind of lively audience. It felt at times a little bit like reactions to a soap opera or a kind of uh, EastEnders Christmas special, the kind of shock when you gasps in the audience and, and so on. But I, I I don't know anything of classical music. That's not my beat. I kind of came away from this thinking, I wonder what Lillian Crawford thinks, um, <laughs> who I know like this is really her, um, her element. And I came away from the film thinking about Lillian, but um, also thinking, oh, wow, I, I want to know more about Joseph Belong and I don't really think I have an issue with with the the route that, that I think the story took because it kind of to me although it it's it's you know it's based on a black man in or biracial man in you know high society it really suffers I think from this kind of post Hamilton Bridgertonification like there's such a contemporary gaze in the film you know, and it doesn't really explore what made him a genius, what made him so incredible at his craft. It's like, it just leans on this thing of like, black people have this kind of preternatural gift for music and athleticism. And it's, and it's like, well, I'd actually like to kind of see that explored more. Um, and then it falls into this kind of forbidden love story. And it just feels, it's this really strange thing of feeling incredibly outdated in the way the story is told, but then stylistically just like too contemporary. It's like, I, I would, I would, I'm just going to do a deep dive on his Wikipedia. I think I would actually get more or, you know, do my own research because this film feels very, uh, you know, I don't know, there's an audience for it. And it's not bad. It's not my thing. But I just feel like if you're going to tell the history of someone, you know, who, who 
their work was destroyed. I don't really know if it needs to be wrapped up in a kind of forbidden love affair. Like, I just really barked at that. It really annoyed me watching it because I kind of came away with so many questions. And I I understand that, you know, historical dramas, you can't, they can't be your basis for you know, education, but it, it just felt like a little bit of a missed opportunity. And it, it did have this kind of Shonda Rhimes thing. I mean, there's even the scene near the beginning where his father, who, you know, is a slave owner, is giving his son a speech about how you have to be excellent so that they can't, you know, diminish you. And I'm like, this, this what are you talking, what, what is this? You know, he's a, he's a slaver. <laughs> like, I don't, I, like, what, what kind of parallel? It just didn't, a lot, there were so many tiny things like that, that are clearly drawing on, you know, that's, again, mentioning Shonda Rhimes, that's the speech from Scandal, right, where Papa Pope is talking to Olivia and saying, you need to be excellent. You can't give them a reason to fault you as she's like this black woman navigating the inner workings of, you know, American politics in the White House. And it's it's just kind of parroting that. And I don't know, I just, there were a lot of issues with it. I am just thinking now that you mentioned it, Miles Morales gets one of those speeches in the recent Spider-Verse. It's very, yeah, it is very much a thing. And um, it's quite exhausting uh, just kind of recycling it. And there's a whole story where, or a whole bit of the film rather, where after his father dies, his mother is freed and she comes to France. And then it's just, she's just kind of there. <laughs> and then, and there's no kind of, there's a real opportunity to kind of explore psychologically what that's like. And, and there's a lovely moment between them where she says, you know, what slavery does to the body is one thing, but what it does to the mind is something else. And I just think I that's the story I think I would wanted to see or I personally had more interest in the kind of psychology of like a black man, a black child by themselves navigating this society and reaching the upper echelons and like the real kind of contradictions that one would have within themselves and it's a really really complex true story and it was just so simplified and hit so many over familiar kind of tired beats that it just I really did not enjoy this film unfortunately I think that acting I thought Kelvin was really good I think you know it was glossy it was fine there's definitely an audience for it but it just it really wasn't for me and I came away quite frustrated clearly Oh, no, it's interesting because I really liked it a lot. And I think I did give it kind of the grace that I suppose Josh mentioned earlier of like, this is a man who needs to have about 16 films about him in the same way that there are so many films about Marie Antoinette who who appears in this. And, you know, what do you do when you just have this kind of one thing and you're trying to make it cinematic and you kind of do end up following kind of more one thread. But yeah, it's interesting because... When you say Hamilton, are you saying that meaning not good? I mean, I'm, I mean the tone of it. There's there's this kind of wink, 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 nudge, nudge to yeah, 2022. Well, Hamilton, what, 2018? But, you know, a contemporary audience. You know, when certain, the, you know, when racial slurs are used, there's like, OK, pause for gasp or pause for titting kind of thing. And it just felt very Netflix-y, which, again, that's fine because that's, what that has an audience and that's what it is I just was quite frustrated I suppose that this might be the way in to find out about this person or that there was less curiosity about him as a man than there was about again a kind of love affair or, or the French court you know it just you know it would be it'd be more interesting maybe if it wasn't about a real person I'd maybe just find it quite fun in what in parts you know Interesting. Just wanted to make sure we weren't insulting my my beloved Lynn Manuel. <laughs> <laughs> Never, no. The Bridgetification of things is kind of, of something that I find a bit unsettling. I found a lot of the race stuff in The Little Mermaid to be absolutely bizarre. But with this, it kind of worked more for me because I felt like Kelvin was so good at performing that those kind of tie you know that struggle that he has within him of you know the fact that he won't be able to marry a white woman because that's illegal but if he married a black woman um he'd lose his knighthood which at the time means a lot to him I mean Josh for you did you come away from it feeling that like you had a real sense of who Joseph Belong was I think so, but with the obvious caveat that it cuts off a very key part of what we do know about him is that he did ultimately go on to lead like the first black battalion in Europe uh, during the French Revolution against you know, the monarchy, you know, you know against uh, Marie Antoinette, who he's obviously very pally with for 
some of the movie. Yeah, spoilers for the French Revolution. Doesn't work out well for her. <laughs> Stay for the mid credits, but yeah, so it, it does kind of cut off before that, which I think has been also. You know, not amongst yourselves necessarily, but I know has been a point of contention for some of the more middling reviews is that like, oh, well, that sounds like an interesting movie. Why didn't we get that? But then I also think, well, maybe we will, because I don't know if this is successful enough or claimed enough. Maybe this hopefully spurs a, a number of uh, films about Bologna or TV series or people thinking that this was crap and being like, no, let's do a better job. <laughs> let's uh, do it comprehensively rather and um, do kind of do the whole story. So I think, you know, for me personally, up to the point that it does end, I, I feel that it's, it's a well-drawn portrait of, of Joseph. Um, but I fully understand Rogan's take on that and um, some of the other complaints I have read outside of this podcast. So, Well, it is certainly, you know, the French Revolution is the gift that keeps on giving film-wise. There's so many, many stories to be told. And I, I do also just really appreciate it, seeing it from a different perspective, I suppose. I'd never seen that society through that lens, even though I'm kind of quite familiar with it because at school they seem to teach us nothing but the French Revolution and World War II. And so those are the only two historical events I have any sense of. But we should get some scores on this. Shall we start with what is likely the nadir? Rogan, do you want to go first? Sure. I think uh, in anticipation, three stars. I didn't see The Watchmen or anything else, actually, I don't think, that Stephen Williams, the director, has worked on, but I'd heard really great things. So, you know, I thought this has potential. I suppose watching it, I, I flipped between a three and a two. I think when he was performing or anything that was about him <laughs> or musically, I enjoyed. And then any um, other kind of plot divergence, I was, I was less, less enthused by. And then I think I'd come, I'd come away from it with a two. I think, yeah, I have, I have a lot more a lot more criticisms of it. Um, I don't. I, I don't think it's a bad time at the movies. I just don't think it's a very good film. Maybe. Well, agree to disagree. But Josh, <laughs> what about you? What are your scores? For anticipation free, I until I was assigned to do an interview feature for this, I didn't really know anything about, about the production. So I'm basing that entirely off enjoying Kelvin Harrison Jr. and Samara Weaving and other things as their deletes. Enjoyment, I would say uh, four. I feel it uh, achieves a good balance between serious and kind of frothy period movie. Although I feel like frothy is a bad word, maybe not the best word choice there. Uh, in retrospect, I would still stick with a four slash three and a half because I do see a lot of faults with the film, but having seen it twice, uh, once on the big screen as well, uh, I, I do really in, enjoy it. And the performances and the musicality, particularly of the editing, I we haven't really touched on that, but I really kind of like the editing in this. But I will say I do very much look forward and hope that other filmmakers and writers kind of tackle uh, the Joseph Ballone story in some cinematic or televisual form because as you said he it seems like he would deserve just as many biopics or stage play interpretations as you know people like Mozart and Beethoven get and especially how many cinematic portrayals of Marie Antoinette there are as well so yes more of that please but not a cinematic universe do not have him meet other Joseph Bologna's in a multiverse yeah I mean yeah I, I think this could make for such a wonderful Wonderful play. I mean, actually, uh, but yeah, or a mini mini series. I mean, I for me, I it was four fours across the board. Probably because Josh, you texted me and said that it was pretty good. But I was kind of left with the such a sense of like how history is shaped rather than kind of just comes to you. I mean, I know that's a very classic thing of it being written by the victors and stuff. But in this one, it's such a kind of specific erasure that you wonder about all the thousands and people whose stories were literally just rubbed out. Um, and so that was deeply depressing, as <laughs> seems to be the way that I end every single segment. But yeah, it's it's made me kind of want to read more history books, read more into kind of people that aren't as celebrated, because there's such incredibly like rich stories like this out there that don't get 15 movies like Mary Antoinette does. But next up, it's War Pony. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wolpa Uni is the interlocking stories of two young Ogola Lakota men growing up in the Pine Ridge Reservation. Before we start, our man in New York, Charles Romesco, got to talk to the directors, Riley Keough and Gina Gamal, about their directorial debut. Uh, thanks, everyone, uh, so much. So I think that a movie of this nature involves a lot of trust between you two as directors and this community that you've sort of immersed yourselves in. Now, I know that Riley met Bill and Franklin Sue Bob while working on American Honey, but can you talk us through the process through which you started to gain the trust of this community, of people who were letting you into their homes to tell their stories? Yeah, well, Bill and I became friends, and then and Frank and I became friends, and then from there it sort of turned into, you know, us meeting their families and their other friends, and I, I certainly can say I don't think the whole community trusts us, but I think that these were friendships that were kind of... I don't know. It were long by the time we were shooting very long term friendships and we were very much, you know, we'd spend holidays together and been through a lot of life things together. And you know, it was it was it was more than a movie. It was it was a movie that was burst out of a friendship. Um and not the other way around. So so yeah. It seems like, you know, looking just at the movie from the outside, the optics, that there would be a certain measure of skepticism, of defensiveness from people who see, you know, uh, they think of Hollywood types coming in and, and they want something. Did you sort of anticipate that? Did you try to get out in front of that? I think that, like Riley just said, uh, there wasn't there wasn't that intentionality. The start of this relationship was friendship. And it was like a, a bunch of friends who spent many years together messing around, making stuff, you know, together. And then slowly this kind of project emerged out of friendship and collaboration. And it wasn't, there wasn't like a, a thing of like, we're coming into this community or coming into these boys' lives to, to take something from them or to gain something from them. It was very much a friendship that evolved as friendships and relationships do into, into this kind of creative pursuit that we were all doing together. And I think that, you know, I think that those, like, we're, we're starkly aware of our position and that we are not from the community and that we're outsiders coming in. Um, but I think that the basis of the film, it wasn't, there was nothing transactional about it. There was nothing, you know, it's a family. It's, it, it's a, it's a very, very, very deep friendships and deep collaboration that was, you know, we really, you know, I feel like the mission was becoming vessels for Frank and Bill to tell their own stories and, and has always, you know, that's the, the foundational truth of, of, of how this happened. But I think that we're very aware of, you know, the history of the, the country, but also the history of, of, you know, cinema and, and what, you know, I think that it's obviously, it's um, not easy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I am... Um... I had been reading that once this creative partnership uh, really got going, that it was very fruitful. And you ultimately, you know, you found that you had more material than you knew what to do with and had to get everything back into feature length. Were there aspects of this community, sort of dimensions that you weren't able to include uh, or, or that you, I guess, would have liked to speak to with the film? When you go to Pine Ridge, it's very hard to stay on track because there's so much beauty and culture and family and and so many beautiful people and wonderful characters and beautiful landscapes it's hard to stay focused <laughs> you know you're kind of like oh my gosh like we need this and we need this in the movie and this in the movie and this in the movie and ultimately like we tried to put as much as we could into the, the film but we would also just come back to like really this is frank and bill's story this is the story we're telling. This is the story that we they're telling. They're telling their own stories. Like we, 
we, you know, there, there were many things we wanted to include and many versions of the script that were very different. And uh, ultimately, I think we would just always come back to like Billy and Frank and their stories they told us and stories they wanted to include. And, you know, we got a few other things in there. I think there was a lot of people in the community as well. Like we, when you, when you finish watching the movie, like it, it lists all of our day players and our extras as well. And I, I really think that like between us and our casting directors, we tried to get like every single person we met for the movie to be in the film because there were so many wonderful actors and it was that was really hard as well with like picking actors because there were like virtually like everybody we saw was good and so I think that actually is what took time was like figuring out who was what character and and putting them together and you know so there's there's like an abundance of beauty and inspiration there so it was hard to like uh, reel it in a lot of the times. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, I think, you know, one of the important aspects of this film is that it doesn't sanitize its portrayal of this community. Now, there are the the truth includes sometimes unflattering aspects as well. And I think in a lot of the movies that we see about marginalized community, there's this temptation to, you know, kind of put a rose colored lens on everything. In making the film, was it very important that you kind of look at this through sober eyes, you know, even with the parts that might not put forward, you know, the most rosy image of things? I think it was important to get it as close to what Frank and Bill and, and people who lived there, who we spoke with, who helped in the writing process, that their version of Pine Ridge. What was most important was capturing the landscape and, and the, the place in the way that Frank and Bill wanted us to. You know, they basically said, we don't, Frank would say, we don't want poverty porn. Like, we're not interested in making right. Pine Ridge look dirty or worse than it is or, or focusing on whatever. And we're also not trying to make it look like it's this perfect, beautiful place that we live, yeah. you know? So yeah. I think it was just trying to trying to make it as accurate as we could and, and the way that they see their homes. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that in a very real way, it's mostly just a movie about kids who are bored hanging out trying to kill time. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, kind of, honestly. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, that, that, there were early drafts where, like, it was very much that, actually. <laughs> and then it kind of uh, developed a little more. Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, the film kind of orients itself uh, around, you know, motivation and action and plot. Uh, one of the main scenes being at the turkey farm, uh, which is soundtrack to Come and Get Your Love by Redbone. A uh, song that I think a lot yeah. of people associate with Guardians of the Galaxy, but they might not realize is by a Native American band. Uh, what sort of new light mm -hmm. did you want people to hear this in? Well, I I don't. I mean, well, just knowing they're indigenous is a is a great light. I don't know if people know that. Like you said, that was a song that we were kind of trying to figure out what the song should be. There were so many different songs in the script, and I actually texted um, Sterling Harjo, who created Res Dogs, and I was like, "What's like a great song from this era? It's indigenous." And he kind of said, "Come and get your love," and I was like, "That's it. That's a yeah. great idea." And they actually put it in their show as well, um, and I just thought that was like a sweet, like little nod to their wonderful show and. Yes, yeah. yeah, so I, I just like he he's a big music guy and I, I just like we couldn't think of what, what, what would be the perfect song there. And um we wanted a sort of like seventies feeling kind of yeah, it's, uh, it's very cathartic, very triumphant. That whole yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. So I'll tell you, I saw the film for the first time at Cannes last year, and you guys won the Camera d'Or, and I was expecting, I guess, waiting for a distribution deal to come around, maybe for the movie to get a release last year in the States, uh, but it took almost a full year for one to come together. I, I wanted, I guess, some insight uh, behind the scenes on what happened there, the conversations while trying to sell this film, which seems to me to be marketable, saleable, but as I imagine had a tougher path towards that than, than you might expect. We, we didn't sell it. We, we did sell the film shortly after Cannes. Oh, really? There was just like a long negotiation period and some things we had to go through, but, but we, we actually it did sell the film relatively quickly after Cannes. It was just like a period of time where things were a little up in the air with, with certain things and, and negotiating happening. All right. Yeah, that's uh, very cryptic, but I'll take that. That's fine. <laughs> One of the other things uh, I remember was when your joint production company, Felix Culpa, began the first post on your Instagram account is of uh, Minnie Mouse and Daisy Duck, I believe, in the back of like a horse-drawn carriage doing bong rips. Um, <laughs> so as you two have shifted into the roles of producers, which is kind of like being a business person, have you tried not to 
become, you know, like a business person to try to remain you even while you are taking on these new responsibilities? I, think I mean, nothing <laughs> could ever make us <laughs> to switch into like into suits or execs. I think that like the whole ethos of our company is like we are people who like to make art and work with artists. And that is what we do. And I think that, you know, it's always art first and creativity first. And uh, I don't think that will ever change. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like both of us have such a big sense of humor and don't take <laughs> really any anything too seriously in life. So I don't think that, you know, I think that there's a way to be an exec and also, you know, be a normal person. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the funny thing about that actually is... There's a way to be an exec and also be a normal person. A, so a, great, a, great, <laughs> a great quote by me. Um, but I, I mean, the funny thing is about that is neither of us smoke pot so there's also that like we we it's we, mostly just the vibe we're not we, it's the, it's we the, do, we the do but it never goes well <laughs> yeah we do but it never it never turns out great <laughs> um and so yeah if i just have time for one more to circle back to the film i um you had said in another interview while you were sort of structuring everything that figuring out the place of whiteness was a sort of tricky wicket that there was one draft of the script that had a white character coming in, but that ultimately was not used. But then there's also the scenes uh, at the wealthy couple's party. I guess, how do you find the place for whiteness in this film without detracting from what you're trying to do, you know, in, in a bigger sense? Yeah, I think that there was an encouragement to kind of put a white perspective in that was a, that was an entry point for other white viewers and potentially like some way trying to mirror like Riley in my perspective, which was so opposite to every, to the film actually. And so in, in conflict with Frank and Bill telling their own stories. And so I think that that was something that we were, you know, there was a pressure to do that. We explored it. We were like, this is awful. And it goes against the very nature of what we're trying to do. Um, and I think that the inclusion of of Tim and Allison, who are the who are the white couple, I think that that was much more organic because we're, we're looking at at the economy of of America and the economy of the film and and who Bill and Frank are employed by are uh, primarily have been white people in their life, and so I think that that entry point, you know, it it, it remains in their perspective and it remains their story, and it isn't trying to like throw in new perspectives that don't belong in, in, in this film. I think it was just like staying in their perspective ultimately. And, and there were drafts that we tried to like add a white protagonist in to make other people feel more, I don't know, like they would finance it, I guess, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was just like, just really like, you know, staying true to Frank and Bill and their story. And that was, that was ultimately what we always went back to. Excellent. I think it's a terrific picture. I really look forward to the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So, Rogan, I mean, nothing for me makes my blood turn cold than um, actress with her directorial debut or actor with his directorial debut. They are often terrible. How did this one shape up for you? Should Riley stick to acting or is she showing some promise? I don't think, you know, as far as directorial debuts by actors go, I, I thought this wasn't bad. I don't think it really introduced her as an incredible, really exciting directing talent, but I, I it was it was a good go. She kind of does a very sort of naturalistic style to the way she shoots and I think the film is really dependent on the two lead performers. I didn't really come away from this thinking about the direction. I came away from it thinking about the, the performers and the story and I, I suppose all the all the sort of history there. And I think that that's the way Riley and Gina wanted it. It's my understanding. I mean, they're two white women and this is a story about, you know, young native men. And, and as far as I know, they have been reluctant to do any press, just focusing on them as directors. They've really wanted to censor the performers. And there's a kind of a self-awareness there to distance themselves from it, but more they are the kind of vessels for these people telling their story. And I, and I think that's actually evident in her directing style. There's a real kind of observational, which I think could be criticised, actually, um, considering the kind of dynamics there between director and actor. But yeah, I, I guess to answer your question, I, I didn't think it was terrible. Hooray! Um, 
Josh, have you seen uh, Chloe Zhao's film, uh, The Rider? Because that seemed to have a lot of similarities with this to me. Yeah, that not to pair two strong women against each other. Yeah, I think there's a lot of comparisons you can draw of The Rider. But in a positive way, I would say one of the comparisons is that at least you know these directors do seem to have very strongly collaborated with the community that they're depicting, um, with the, the two co-writers, uh, Bill Reddy and Franklin Sue Bob, are from, I'm not sure the specific community that it's set in, but like they, they are na- Native American. Riley yeah, kind of met, met one or both of them during the shoot of American Honey and they kind of just hit off. So it's been like a very years in the years in the making process of putting this together. And I, I you know, in a, in a meaningful way that is not falling into the traps that possibly another film I'm going to talk about today falls into regarding arguable poverty porn, uh, you know, which I know is a kind of contentious phrase, but you could so easily especially with yeah, two white filmmakers uh, having the directing credits that could so easily fall into. But I feel like this avoids that because there is that palpable sense of collaboration with the actual community is depicting rather than an outsider coming in and being like, ooh, look at this, look at that, what they're doing. Yeah, it's, it's not voyeuristic, um, I don't think. I feel like I personally kind of feel an unease, you know, when the camera or the director is doing a certain thing. And I, and I did, I enjoyed being in these young men's lives for the the run of the film. So I suppose we haven't really spoken about it. So there's um, Bill, who's like slightly older, I would say early 20s or 19, 20. And then Matho, who's like 12, 13. And they grow up on the, the same reservation, but their stories don't really diverge until the very end of the film. And you just kind of see the parallels between these two young, young boys, you know, they're boys really, and sort of issues with girls, you know, 13-year-old girls and 20-year-old <laughs> women, um, and trying to make money and that kind of survival, just that survival instinct and that need to hustle. And you kind of look at their characteristics and you think with any other kind of start in life, these guys would be really successful because they're just constantly de- well, desperate to improve their situation. And there's a real kind of lightness to them. They aren't these sort of hardened criminals or crooks. It is just about a story about two you know, young men trying to sort of survive and the obstacles they come up against and what they face within their own families and how they, you know, repeat some of the behaviours that, you know, have harmed them and, and that kind of cycle. And I, I think that it, it's a very, I think I'd say it's quite a slow film. And I, I, found, I found it really, really charming. Yeah, I got quite attached. I thought it was a lovely film. Regarding the mention of pacing there, I did personally find the second hour a bit stronger. I wouldn't quite call this the overall style kind of docudrama, but I feel that there is a bit of a documentary influence through some of the filmmaking where in the second hour it kind of bleeds into almost like a sort of dreamlike quality slightly surrealistic but also not you know in a way that does actually feel quite natural and this did have one of the most surprising need not maybe not needle drop because it is someone in the film performing it but one of the most surprising i was not really expecting to hear an annie lennox song being performed in this movie uh, or, or eurythmics rather so that was a that was a nice surprise it really reminded me actually now you say that a needle drop and this is something i'd written down there's this documentary that i've watched at uni called the seventh fire and i actually can't recall if that director's native or not so it could be treading a similar kind of ground here but it was about you know young men and it's like the older man kind of coming back and reckoning with choices he had made and so on and one thing I found really interesting was the way hip-hop was used in that documentary and you see it I think especially in the first hour of this film and I yeah it just reminded me of that and that's a, that was a good documentary from what I remember and the music was interesting and positive on this one. Yeah, she's a fantastic actress, so we don't want to kind of lose her too much from that side of things. But I would, I would much rather see her get swallowed into the world of directing than into a big multiverse like uh, what happened with our dear Elizabeth Olsen. I know. Rest in peace. Gone but not forgotten, Elizabeth. But we should get some scores on this. Uh, Josh, you want to go in first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Sure, I'm going to do my standard anticipation free. I did not know much other than this this one, the uh, camera door for best first feature at last year's Cannes Film Festival. So there's a degree of expectation with that, I suppose. Enjoyment free, I did, I wouldn't say struggled with the first hour, but I sort of appreciated how it kept, became a bit more focused as it went along and yeah, really enjoyed the kind of detour it took. And uh, I would say in retrospect free as well, it's good, but I don't have strong feelings beyond that. Megan, what about you? Again, yeah, in anticipation, I always go with a three as well. I mean, you never know what you're going to get. Could be incredible, could be terrible. You know, safe three. And then watching it, 
I would give it a three two. Like Josh, I did kind of struggle with the first hour, but I think by the time I got to the end of it, I, I actually forgot that I found the first hour a little bit trying, maybe, or not quite trying, just slow. And then in retrospect, I'd give a really strong three, a really high three. I do recommend this. I think it's like a really good weekday evening film. You know, if you just fancy getting out and going to the cinema, I don't think you can go wrong with this. I think it's a it's a lovely way to, to spend your time. Yeah, I think probably two in anticipation for me because of the whole actor's directorial debut thing. I've been burned before. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of that 3.9 level where I can't quite feel that it's a four, but both enjoyment and in retrospect, there was like plenty to admire. And I wouldn't kind of discourage anyone that wanted to seek this out. There's a, there's a lot there to feast upon. Next up, it's Film Club. Ryan Gosling's directorial debut is about a single mother who is swept away into a dark underworld when her teenage son discovers a road that will take him to a secret underwater town. So, Josh, this is the first time you're watching Lost River. I mean, speak about a movie that seems to have been made by AI, i got to say. Yeah, I. so from my recollection, this, this premiered at Cannes in 2014, but didn't get a release until the following year. But it's released... You know, despite being a Ryan Gosling directed feature, its release was something like, at least for the UK, it was a case of one-off screenings with like satellite q and I think it was. Because I remember I ushered a screening when I lived in Glasgow. And then it was out on DVD like four days later or something like that. So it was a very truncated theatrical run, which you know, was maybe not the best sign for a film that did have some you know, decent backing behind it. And I recall at the time thinking it was awful. Um, so I was not looking forward to revisiting it. And my take now, I'm less angry at it, but I just, I just, I just still find it a completely vapid exercise. I apologise to the critic in question if if they're listening to this because I do not recall who said it, but I know there was one contemporary review at the time that suggested that Gosling doesn't understand that a film isn't just like gifs of David Lynch and uh, Mario Bava movies, and that's almost like what he's assembled here. There's a lot of I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna pull an Aretha Franklin here and be like great great lighting wonderful lighting. <laughs> Um, lighting department did a great job but it's a a lot of images that you know are still screenshots off like vlc player or whatever you know will look great on like a on like a blog but in in motion i don't think there's any actual weight to the way the imagery has been assembled obviously it's it's kind of going for a nicholas wining reference lynchian feel and i think the, the trouble with this one is that david lynch films deliberately have a very you know confusing internal logics but you can tell there is an internal logic to the people in the films whereas this i don't think there's anything to any of the characters in this movie it's almost like gosling is, re- is relying on you to be automatically sympathetic to oh there's this boy and girl in a in a, in a rough neighborhood um, you, you will automatically care about them if we pair them together. You will automatically want them to, to thrive without really you know, giving any weight behind their, their stories, their characters. I'm going to go on a slight tangent here referencing a review of my own that I did for a little while, Eliza, a while ago, but the, the British actor Neil Maskell, who is... You know, collaborated a lot with Ben Wheatley. Uh, I reviewed his directorial debut at the London Film Festival last year, and I think he overcomes this, but I think there's always a thing with some actors where you, you're watching a directorial debut and you can pick up where they've clearly been influenced by people they've worked with. So like you can see a lot, yeah, you can see a lot of Reffin in Lost River. You can see a lot of Terence Malick who Gosling had shot song to song with, although it ended up finally coming out after Lost River did. You can see that certainly early on. And I think it's a lot of mimicry of styles without actually having a voice of its own and really making these weird images, weird weird soundscapes, weird characterizations actually cohere in a way that is actually compelling as a whole. I think, you know, individually, I like a couple of shots in the movie, but that's really all I can say. Also, it's nice to see Barbara Steele, although she doesn't have anything to say, but uh, I've spoken enough. I, I love that this is you less angry the second time round. <laughs> Rogan, what about you? I mean, I just thought it was a god-awful mess. It really did remind me of that... Um, chat gdp or whatever it's called <laughs> you just kind of feed it a load of things and then just some sort of ungodly cacophony happened on screen yeah i mean i agree with everything both of you have said but as a child of tumblr i feel like i must come to this movie's defense. i mean i mean that's like what it was 
made for, right? It was teenage teenage girls on Tumblr are the reasons that I think this film might still be in anyone's consciousness. I remember reblogging the Sasha Ronan song, which I don't think was ever released, but was like the audio was ripped and did the rounds on the blogs. You know, I mean, that's, it, it is just a mess. And you kind of, and you see the Terrence Malick influence in the beginning and you see the Nicholas uh, Reffin, you know, and you see all of these, you know, Ryan's a passionate guy. He really wears his influences on his sleeve. And can we fault him for that? I mean, yes, because the film's terrible, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when I rewatched it, I remember thinking, oh, wow, Eva Mendes really loves him. Because <laughs> I was going to say, it's a, it's a real shame. This is her last film credit. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, yeah, she she loves him so much. And that's just, that's really beautiful for me. Um, I'm, I'm being, I'm just being contrary now, but um, yeah, I do have like a, a soft spot because I was, you know, massive. I, I still am a Ryan Gosling fan, but he was, you know, my teenage. He was my, he was my guy. He was my actor. I love The Place Beyond the Pines. I love Drive, all of that stuff. So I remember just the excitement of when this film came out. And then feeling like every single frame was just so familiar that that must mean he's a genius, you know, um, because like he did it. He executed it the way that, you know, all the other uh, great directors did. But no, it, it's not a good film. The story doesn't make any sense. The characters aren't very well fleshed out. But I do think it's interesting. I mean, it's Christina Hendricks, like when Mad Men is at the height of its powers, right? Was like Matt Smith do, still doing Doctor Who at this time? I think this premiered after Capaldi had debuted. But it's still, you know, he he got together, you know, people who were doing really well to come and wait and do this weird little thing with him, which I always appreciate on some level. But no, I mean, can I recommend this film? No. Does it hold a lot of nostalgia for me? Yes. I probably I won't watch it again, though. I will just rewatch Drive or The Place Beyond the Pines or something. Or Barbie, you know, when, when I can to get a kind of a real insight into Gosling's mind. I think Ken will probably be more illuminating than this film. This does feel like a film that could have been directed by Ken. Like if we showed Ken. <laughs> like <laughs> Ken on SSRIs, maybe. <laughs> Why not? Ken on Nancy's Lost River. Yeah, I can see that. It it has uh, taken absolutely no sheen of how excited I am to see what the hell that movie is going to be. And I suspect Anne Ken is going to be absolutely delightful. But we should move on to our final bit of the show. One last thing. So, Rogan Graham, what is your non-movie recommendation that you're going to leave us with? So I have I have two. Go and see Beyonce if you can. Get on a Ryanair flight to wherever else she's next performing in in Europe. Remortgage your house if you have to. Take out a credit card. I I saw her last week and I've been on a real come down since. It's like she was incredible. The Renaissance World Tour is amazing. I don't know really if this is like for truth and movies fans, but this is my non-film recommendation. Go and see Beyonce. Or alternatively, more in line probably with the listeners, watch Barry. If you're unfamiliar, it's a comedy, uh, question mark, uh, by HBO, uh, created by Bill Hader. It starts off as a show about a hitman who decides to change his life and become uh, an actor. And the show is really about human nature and difficult men. It's in the same vein as kind of Breaking Bad incredible action sequences like the best action sequences i think i've ever seen on tv really great female character sally reed sarah goldberg is incredible as sally reed yeah go watch barry if you can't go and see beyonce or do both like me at the same time yeah what i I love about barry is just that the simplicity of the premise of how funny it is that somebody who's a really really good hitman wants to become a really bad actor and he's so good at one and he's so poor at the other. It's just so delightful. But yes, sadly, Barry ended on the same night that the succession did. So it'd be going backwards. And to me, with the, you know all of the terrible things that are happening with the writer's strike, there seemed to be a very dark moment where succession and Barry came to an end. Brilliantly written shows. And then The Idol started as the HBO's next big one. And it's like, mom. Sorry, I feel like The Idol, haven't seen it, probably won't. I imagine it has a lot in common with Lost River stylistically and, you know, in terms of being very shallow with some pretty pictures and not very fleshed out characters. I imagine they share similarities in that sense. Or from what I've read, they do. For a different gig, I did have to watch The Idol and I say it's a show that's very, very message first. It's very didactic and also the message sucks. Like the message is evil. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. 
I suppose, a non-movie, non-recommendation thrown in there for me. Um, Josh, what about you? What's your non-movie recommendation? Uh, in terms of something actually out this week, since I did call Riley Keough, Rilo Kylie earlier, uh, the new Jenny Lewis album is very good. That That's so... Listen to that. Why not? It's called Joel. In terms of stuff that is not necessarily new but is wrapping up soon that I would flag up is the uh, exhibition at the VNA South Kensington in London, exhibition on popular culture of South Korea, like exploring the makings of the Korean wave and its global impact on like cinema, drama, music, fandom, etc., fashion. And it's got a lot of cool stuff. And that is finally coming to a close on the 25th of June. So we've only got a couple of weeks left. So I would recommend people go to that. And you can see the toilet from Parasite. So there you go. You can get a selfie probably with a toilet from Parasite. Oh, wow. So only a couple of weeks is going to be this. We're all going to be storming there with our phones. Because <laughs> that's essentially what the Mona Lisa has become. It's basically just a cue to take a selfie. And it'll be that. But film nerds and the toilet from Parasite. But but Layla, what, what, if, what if with the help of AI, you could see what goes beyond the frame of the Mona Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> what if? Yeah. Imagine. Maybe I've been worrying about the wrong things. I've been trying to kind of, you know, punish Sam Levinson for his crimes. And there's actually something much more sinister happening in the background. Ah, well, if you've got thoughts on these films, email truthandmovies at TCO London or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, further proof that cancel culture isn't really a thing as Ezra Miller stars in The Flash. Attend a drama about masculinity with Pretty Red Dress and we'll be talking to its director, Dion Edwards. And for Film Club, it's Edwards' cult classic the genre bending Glenn or Glenda. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Layla Latif, and my guests this week were Rogan Graham and Josh Slater-Williams. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stangus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.